The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, break out your winter coats because the market is entering the chill zone. That's the message tonight from Canaccord's Tony Dwyer, how he is positioned for a December dip. Plus, C-Spot Ron investors turning up the volume on Spotify today. We'll tell you what sent this stock to new all-time highs. And later, if you unground it, will they come? Boeing's Max plane taking to the skies today in a high-stakes show of confidence. But are customers really convinced it is safe to fly? We start off tonight with the most important chart in the market, because of course we would. According to one of our traders, check out the yield curve. The spread between 10 and 2-year treasuries at its highest level since February 2018. So are rates off to the races? Could this rate shock crush this record rally? Karen, you flag this. Yeah, I don't know if it will crush this record rally. We don't want rates to skyrocket too quickly. I mean, this is a big move, but still, you know, the absolute is 78 some odd basis points. But it is sort of telling us that the expectation is that the economy will heat up. And we've seen that in the resources trades that Tim talks about. We've seen it in energy. We're seeing it, you know, we see it in the banks, um, even though they don't really aren't a giant 210 spread. They do trade that way. So it's indicative of the expectation of a heating up economy, maybe also more stimulus. So that's sort of how I'm positioned. But I also have a big inflation bet on because I do think there is a chance that uh, inflation gets away from the Fed. And I don't mm -hmm. know what they would do. In the shorter to medium term, the time frame, though, Tim, I mean, it's got to be a Goldilocks, right? Just enough inflation, not too much inflation. It's got to be just right. Yeah, I mean, definitely not too hot, not too cold. And you have a case where uh, normalized rates coming out of this uh, and whatever that means also. But where we were coming into COVID, remember, we're somewhere between 140 and 175 on the 10 year. So Karen's pointed out what the trades that have been beneficiaries or have had the extra boost that comes from this and the resources trade. I mean, look, copper's at 350. We haven't been at 350 uh, since March of 2013. And some of the trades that look like it's back to the future in the resources trade, look at steel companies. And I'm not just talking about U.S. steel. Look at Mattel, which is arguably you know, the biggest steel company in the world, or Posco. These are you know, MT, PKX. Those are you know, names you can track over here. Freeport, we talk about all the time. So uh, I, I think you have a case where the, the assessment of all of this, to me, is more about normalizing. It's not that we're in great shape. And in fact, I, I think we're in a tough place for markets and even some of these trades when we've normalized, but we aren't near normalization at this point. Mm -hmm. Then later on, fiscal, even if that's a disappointing number, uh, infrastructure to me is, is going to continue to rally. And these trades, uh, remember, again, you don't buy commodities when, you're, when they're cheap. You buy them when they're running and when they're expensive. And I, I think there's a lot left to do here. When we say we, 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 we're taking the perspective of what's going on in the U.S. economy, <laughs> but the right, but ambassador, and I'm sure Guy would have pointed this out, uh, you know, there is a full recovery post-COVID going on in Asia, and that is really helping to heat up this resource trade as well, with the prospect that stimulus here in the U.S. could eventually restart things, Guy. 
And look, first of all, nobody eats porridge ever. I, I, do you even know what porridge is? And Isn't, I, I always thought it was like oatmeal or cream of Twitter. wheat or something like it's, that, well, which I like in the winter just eat oatmeal or cream yeah. of wheat. Okay. Anyway, yeah, nobody eats porridge. Number one, and and I the Goldie, but don't please the you know the Goldie Goldilocks. That that makes me almost as crazy Come as on, uh, Happy Turkey Day. You're it's a, a great story. I'm just saying. With that said. No, it's just true. And I think Karen's exactly right. You know, for long as rates go higher, just sort of gradually, I think things are fine. I just don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, she said, I don't think the Fed has, knows what to do. They don't know what to do if that happens. So be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. And, oh, by the way, there's inflation everywhere that the Fed doesn't count. But what does it mean for the trade? And, again, Karen pointed out the resource trade that Tim's talked about. We've been talking about Freeport, McMoran. Uh, U.S. deal, a number of different names, and they've been off to the races, and there's still room. In terms of the banks, we did the math game, and I actually took the math in college one day, and we pointed out that when Citibank was trading $41, it was at 57% of tangible book. And we said that it makes no sense. These were actually worse levels than the financial crisis. And just in terms of where it should go, 85% is reasonable. Well, guess what? It's at about 80% now. $61 gets to 81 per 85%, and that's where I think we're going in the banks. Then we can have another conversation. Dan, what's your take on the spread? Um, I think these guys really surrounded the trade, Mel. Um, you know, I would just say this, is that obviously we've had this pretty sharp move off the bottom in the 10-year. You know, I like to draw lines. I took an art class for one day in college. A guy actually went to math class for one day. We just learned. Um, you know, draw a line on the 10-year. Go back 20 years. Go back to 7%. And then we topped out at 5% prior to the financial crisis. Then we topped out at 3% about two years ago. And then right before the pandemic, at 2%. This is before the Fed had to take emergency actions, um, bringing rates to zero. So we're having this move off the bottom in the 10-year, and I just draw a line, and I say to myself, okay, go to one and a half. Have at it, as Tim might say. Um, but every time we've seen a precipitous <laughs> rise in rates... We've seen a knee-jerk reaction in stocks over the last few years. Go back to Q4 2018, go back to Q1 um, 2020. So to me, you know, I mean, listen, I, I just think that, to Guy said, careful what you wish for. I don't think after we've tacked on trillions of dollars to our deficit that anybody, and the way corporates have been borrowing, that anyone wants to see rates go too far too fast. Especially the Fed. So what if the Fed steps in? Correct. Let's bring in Steve Leisman for more on that aspect of the story. And Steve, obviously the Fed's already buying boatloads of bonds, different kinds of bonds. It could easily change what it buys and buy more on the long end of the curve. Yeah, Melissa, I've listened to the conversation. I, I, I was just wondering, if you guys freak out at 93 on the 10-year, <laughs> what are you going to do at 1%? Yeah. I mean, are you going to, like, take off, all, you know, just, like, run muck amuck <laughs> in the street? I mean, what's going to happen to you people? Um, look, I, I think the Fed watches this. I think there's, I don't know, maybe a little bit of concern, but it's one of the areas where, unlike a lot of parts of the economy that need to be fixed with fiscal policy, which is what Powell's been pounding the table about, they have quite a few tools that they can do. As you suggest, Melissa, they can go out and buy more bonds totally, or what they can do is change the tenor of their, uh, of their portfolio. They can sell the short end and buy the long end and bring that curve down. I don't believe they're at any particular point where there's concern. Um, and I've said this on the show this morning. I wouldn't freak about inflation until I see 
the economy back to work. And that's because I think people forget that what's happening in the economy right now is a supply side and a demand side issue. There are factories that still aren't working. There's global trade that's still not happening because of the virus. So I don't know if the Fed would be quite ready yet to declare that we have some terrible mismatch where the money supply is too high relative to supply and demand. I don't think they'd get there just yet. I think they look at these things that you guys are looking at, and I don't think you're wrong to look at them like copper. But I'd say, you know what, let's wait till things settle down a little bit with supply and demand more in line. But the Fed can act in this regard. The Fed has always, though, been very cautious, Steve, when it comes to um, taking measures during this pandemic and has stepped into parts of the market that didn't it didn't look like it needed to step into. Um, I guess I'm thinking of corporate bond buying, and I guess it was the jawboning that really helped uh, open up those markets and, and get them under control. Mm-hmm. Um, but even some jawboning to this effect could help with this with this yield curve, which could then help with borrowing costs and and help a lot of those companies who are having difficulty servicing their debt during this time. And that could have some, um, you know, positive effects. I think that's an issue. But, you know, for that, I would also just put up the five-year chart, right? Because the five-year is one that is much more closely tied to the cost of corporate credit. And by the way, spreads on high yield, spreads on investment grade, those are very, very narrow right now. I don't think there's an issue of the cost of corporate borrowing right now. And yeah, the Fed doesn't want to be in those places, but it's shown that if it feels it needs to be because of a lack of market functioning, the Fed will indeed step in and do so without much reservation. Uh, And it went, as you said, where no Fed had gone before uh, uh, at the beginning of this crisis. Um, I would also say that the Fed's going to want to look at the reason why rates are rising. If rates are rising because prospects for the economy are better, I think it'll abide that. Steve, thanks for being on. Let me ask you, as the, as the Fed goes out in duration, it's obviously going to get more expensive for them. Do they care at all about that, or just deficits don't matter at all for the next, I don't know how long? When you say more expensive for the Fed to, to buy more, well, I, I, the, the Fed doesn't think of itself as a profit and loss-making organization. It doesn't have that issue the way other, some other central banks do. So that's not going to be an issue, I think. Um, the Fed's going to do, and I think it has an unlimited ability to do, what it thinks it needs to do for the economy. I think uh, the Fed could go, for example, to negative interest rates. It doesn't want to do that for a whole lot of reasons and almost certainly won't. But it could do that and it could it could buy the long end as much as it wants. Um, it does have concern being perceived to be financing the deficit. But where and how you make that distinction between what the Fed is doing now, purchasing $120 billion a month of treasuries uh, and mortgages uh, for market functioning and doing so to finance the deficit, uh, you can say it's not for that reason. But, well, what effect it has, yeah, yeah, it almost certainly does. Hey, Steve, it's Tim. But the Fed is arguably the, the estimated profit out there. And, and, and the minute they're, they're not going to change their tack, <laughs> but the minute they change the communication is 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 part of the story here. And so that's more what I worry about. I, we, we know the Fed's going to err uh, on being overly lax, but uh, any change in some sense uh, about reeling in even extraordinary, um, don't you think that's going to have a massive impact on rates and, and you know, perversely on the stock market, too? So I am completely with you, Tim, and I'm, I'm with you in 7-4 timing, which is an inside Grateful Dead joke, which you just yes, made. Yes, you are. Um, yes, and, and you I'm are. Right, right back at you, Timmy. So listen, um, 
Here's the deal, and I think this is a really important point that you make. Think about the two major thrusts of Fed policy, the interest rate policy and the quantitative easing or the asset purchase policy. The Fed has fine-tuned to a fairly well the interest rate policy. We now know the Fed is going to remain low for many years to come nice. and going to keep interest rates at or near zero. Why? Uh, until inflation actually rises above 2%. Market has great visibility and transparency on that. Now, everybody on the panel, raise your hand if you understand why the Fed will, won't add, subtract, or decline or decrease its holdings of, of, of assets, uh, treasuries and mortgages. There is no enunciated reason. That's why the Fed keeps saying we need to do better communications. The market has no visibility. And I think that's what leads to Karen's, uh, you know, uh, concern here, why the panel itself right now is talking about this, because the Fed has yet to do as good a communications mm -hmm. job on asset purchases as it's done on interest rates. All right. Let's hope Jerome Powell's listening. Steve, thank you. Steve Wonderful. Leisman. Pleasure. Guy Dami, what's the market reaction if the Fed decides to buy the longer end of the curve? What do you think the market reaction is? Um, I, I, am, I am certain they will, uh, th that will be championed and that will be bullish, just like any other Fed action. You know, th the only time the market is, goes neg is negative is when the Fed decides not to act or to take away from, you know, from their, 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 their bowl of goodies. And, and, and listen, you know, it's interesting that Steve said something. He said, you know, the Fed's there when the market acts, or, and I'm paraphrasing now, but you know, when the market d doesn't behave properly or market functions don't act well, you know, it, it, what's interesting about that, and we just have a disagreement here, you have to let, when I was, my kids were younger, you got to let them ride their bicycle. Guess what? They're going to fall off, but they got to learn how to do it. If I ride the bicycle for them, they're never going to learn how to do it. It's the same with the market. The Fed has to back away at some point and just let things, let the chips fall where they may. But you know what? Unfortunately, they got themselves in a position where they can't. And that was proven in October 2018 through December of that year when the market went down 19.9%. When Jerome Powell at the time said we're going to normalize rates and we're going to reduce our balance sheet in sort of a systematic fashion. So, listen, I mean, I think sometimes we make this harder than it should be. I know I'm guilty of it, but the Fed is too much of this equation, and now they're getting themselves in deeper in a place where they shouldn't be. Well, our next guest says the market is entering the chill zone, but he is ready to buy a December dip. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, great to have you with us. Um, I'm going great to, to first ask you a question before we get to the December chill part of the conversation about what happens. At what level are you concerned about that 10-year yield from a market standpoint? I don't. Is it one percent? Is it one point? I have no idea. Already we're talking about it, which, you know, to the panel's point. What I do want to say, though, is I, I think that if if you do get a nuance where the Fed comes in and starts to aggressively buy the treasuries, mm -hmm. I don't know that that would be such a bullish move in that it would kind of hit the cyclical trade, which is what has been driving things for the last month. It's really it's really been an extraordinary month. And just mm -hmm. listening to everybody, the backdrop is kind of how it's been prescribed. You have an extraordinary, extraordinary level of excess liquidity. And at the same time, you have this synchronized global recovery where, remember in 2011, Mel, where the ECB raised rates into the teeth of the crisis? Mm -hmm. You're not going to get that this time. You have a true synchronized monetary and fiscal stimulus globally that's at the same time as this, is this beginning of, a, of an economic recovery. 
So it would be negative for the markets is what you're saying, opposite of what Guy did. I, I, yeah, I don't think it would be great for the cyclicals. I think yeah. what, you know, the reason that the market is set up for a chill, I mean, and it, by chill, I, I'm not looking for a big drop. I just don't think up 20% on the Russell 2000 in a month. And, and that's been my, my framework is that's my favorite area. But up 20% history shows generally whatever you get after that, which could actually mean upside for December. At some point, you're going to buy it better. And that was the the purpose of the note was you've had such an extraordinary run. I would much rather, much rather buy into weakness. And to give you an idea of how it's happening, despite the headlines, Mel, the percentage of S&P 500 components trading above the 10-day moving average when we put out our initial thought that you were going to go into this kind of quiet period, you had on, on November 11th, 90% of the S&P was above the 10-day moving average. Today, it was 66%. So even though you've had the, the the indices kind of grind to new highs and really rally, the average stock has been pulling back a little bit. Big Tony, so thank Tony, you for joining us. Tony, 3,700 or thereabouts. I, I, oh, I'm, Guy, why don't go you ahead, go? Guy. I'm sorry. I, I apologize, Tim. Tony, I'm sorry. I was going to say we're at 3,700 in the S&P 500. What's a logical resting place or logical support level? Uh, Dan's talked about, and I've mentioned it, 3,400 seems logical. Is that too far at this point? I, you know, an algorithmic trading at the end of the year. with uh, So what happens in a, in, a, in a pause or a correction or a consolidation is it comes out of nowhere. It's not COVID. It's not, it's not the things that you can anticipate. When you have such bullishness, remember a month ago you were down 8%. Less than 10% of the S&P were above their 10-day moving average. You had the election right in front of you. You hadn't had the vaccine news yet, so you had the second wave about to punch you in the face, and nobody was bullish. That was the time to buy. When you get into the, a whoosh like that, we came on the show and did that. The time to not chase is now. So, guy, I don't know if there's a quote-unquote level that I'd look to be a buyer. It's really a framework, and the framework for me is something I've talked a lot on the show about. When the percentage of stocks above the 10-day moving average drops into single digits, meaning more than 90% are below the 10-day moving average, in a bull market, that's enough. But to me, again, I cannot, I've said it for four months, you cannot, this level of excess liquidity, and at the same time, having this global recovery, that's why these cyclicals have been rallying. They're already discounting that higher mm -hmm. yield and that better recovery. Uh, but just to clarify, Tony, because I'm not sure if you, you put the number associated with the chill i mean it, it sounds really more like a breeze you know yeah. a, a, a three to five percent pullback three to five percent yeah we've already had so the market mel is acting very much like it did in the fall of 2009 after the 50 percent run into august of that year you had three corrections that ranged between three and seven percent the two we've already had which were the september swoon and then the whoosh that we had at the end of october before the election they were a little bit bigger between five and ten percent so the third one could just be a minor one that sets the stage mm -hmm. for the next leg higher. So I, mm -hmm. I certainly don't want to come across as, wow, the market's going to get blasted here. You just have excess enthusiasm. You have an extreme overbought condition. Mm -hmm. And everybody's kind of jumped on the bandwagon of this global recovery trade. Right. And that's usually when it's time to just pause and wait for your better opportunity. Tony. Thank you, Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity. By the way, you can read more about analysts year-end uh, in 2021 calls on our website. Head on over to cmc.com slash pro to sign up. 
Um, Dan Nathan, a three to five percent pullback to remedy an extremely overbought, overenthusiastic situation mm -hmm. in the market seems to be nothing. I mean, that would seem like a major victory. Yeah, well, it, it seems fair. And it's actually and I think I mentioned this the other night on the show. I mean, I, I would go a little deeper than that. I mean, you have room down. Guy was talking about thirty four hundred, maybe um, a little below that. And, and you have the setup, which is a really a good multi month base into the new year. Um, you know, I don't really think you want to get too far ahead of yourself with this extreme um, positive sentiment right now in December, I think that's going to pull forward some um, performance um, at least early next year. And I'll just take you back to four years at this time. You know, the world was convinced, or at least the investment community was convinced, that U.S. equities and risk assets related to the U.S. were a buy. Everything went up for a few months. Um, equities were the ones that really were the stalwart and they kept on going. Um, I just kind of feel like when you think about where we are and what we have to contend with and what we don't know about the uh, vaccine and when our population, when the global population is going to be inoculated, I just think that there should be a little bit more fear in the markets right here. But you might have this seasonal trade. I just don't think you want to see equities close at the tippy tip top um, after a year that we've had in 2020. It might set up for a very nasty Q1 in 2021. We have got an earnings alert for you on CrowdStrike. Check out the shares. They are soaring after earnings. Our Kate Rooney joins us with the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, shares up more than 12 percent after a strong third quarter for CrowdStrike. The cloud cybersecurity company beating on the top and bottom line and issuing better than expected guidance for the upcoming quarter. CrowdStrike hit a record in annual recurring revenue. That's a key metric for these subscription software businesses. That came in just shy of a billion dollars. As Andy Nowinski of D.A. Davidson put it, there is nothing more important than ARR. CrowdStrike, as he says, absolutely crushed that estimate for the quarter, which could be indicative of accelerating share gains. The conference call also just getting underway here. CEO and founder of CrowdStrike, George Kurtz saying the quarter was driven by demand and strength in multiple areas of that business. He highlighted 87 percent subscription revenue growth and record new customers. The company provides cloud-based security for roughly half of the companies in the Fortune 500. Brent Till of Jefferies pointing to security as a growing priority for those companies in a work-from-anywhere environment. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate. Thank you, Kate Rooney. And just to write on that point, Piper had its survey out, and, and they actually found that among the survey participants who were buyers for companies, they said that this was a category that they would increase spend on. So CrowdStrike would theoretically be that beneficiary for work from home. Tim Seymour, up 81% year-on-year in ARR. That is staggering. It, it is, but... Um, part of the reason the stock's done this is one of the things Kate referred to in terms of the strength of their, their growth within the Fortune 500 and, and that the customer base, you know, people wanted to see this with a lot of the software-based companies, especially those, even, even Palantir. Um, but, but when you get back to CrowdStrike, this is a company who is truly making themselves essential uh, within the Fortune 500, and that's where I think there's still a lot of growth. I, I hate the valuation. I don't chase it here. Those are fantastic numbers, um, but that's, that's the story here, and certainly uh, the story around security. That's you know, going to continue to stay hot. Piper's right. All right. Coming up, the nightmare before Christmas. UPS putting the brakes on key customers ahead of the holiday. What it means for the stock and later the rideshare rally. Uber hitting a new all-time high. We'll tell you what drove investors into these names when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number 
and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. UPS going all grinchy just ahead of the holidays. The shipping giant is reportedly limiting pickups and deliveries from some key names, including Nike, Gap, and L.L. Bean. This move coming as online holiday sales surged during uh, this pandemic. Uh, Dan, we should keep in mind that these two, UPS and FedEx, that is, they actually raised prices already. So what does this what what do you think this all means? Well, I think it's good for them right now. I think about nine months ago, um, you know, the, there was a very different sort of sentiment, at least from the investor class, looking at these two um, stocks. But what it does show right now is that they have tremendous pricing power and they probably have the ability to structure some longer term deals with some of their customers that maybe they didn't feel like they had the ability to do that last year, especially when we know that Amazon was investing heavily into logistics. So, um, you know, again, we've talked about winners of the pandemic. Um, these guys have obviously done very well, as bricks and mortar have done very poorly, and they've just accelerated a lot of behavior. So I would consider it um, this to be a trend that kind of sticks around, and these guys have that pricing power going forward. Yeah, I mean, this is all about management of flow and also management of, of their biggest and best customers. We just learned that Walmart uh, is basically saying free shipment on everything for its Walmart Plus members, Karen. I would imagine that keeping Walmart happy and, ma- and servicing that flow of packages is much more important than maybe servicing some smaller customers. Yeah, I think, I mean, I second whatever Dan said, I agree with the backdrop of being very positive. For I mean, you have customers just demanding your product, and you can raise prices, and they're still demanding your product, and you're telling them we're going to have to ration because we can't fulfill all the orders. So I like I switched from UPS to FedEx. They're very similar stories. They're going to trade together. UPS has um, a 22 multiple. FedEx is a little bit lower. And I think FedEx is also really gaining momentum. They've been in a multi-year turnaround that's finally really sticking. And so that's where I think a little better value is, but they're both good. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's the Boeing 737 MAX. We'll get an inside look into the refurbished jet as it gets back in the air for the first time in nearly two years. And later, liftoff for lift shares. Why the stock is surging even though the company cut its outlook. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out this video. You're looking at a Boeing 737 MAX plane with passengers on board. The company conducting a high-stakes flight today in a show of confidence that it is safe to fly. Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's got the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. You saw those people there at the end? Those were reporters, journalists, av geeks. It's what you call a media flight, part of uh, American trying to show reporters and restore confidence with the public that, look, this is a safe plane. And the good news for American, this is a really uneventful flight. I talked with a couple of reporters who were on it. They said, felt like any other 737 that take off and, and lands. They had made this flight after upgrading putting in new flight control software, making all of the changes necessary required by the FAA in the cockpit as well as with the training procedures for the pilots. Remember, the first MAX flight, it happens between Miami and New York City. That happens at the end of this month. So as you look at the MAX coming back in service, you've got American at the end of this month. United in the first quarter, and then in the second quarter, we'll get Southwest. Remember, Southwest has more 737 Maxes than any other airline. As you look at shares of American, remember, they have 24 of these Maxes, and they're going to feather them into the schedule during the first quarter. And for Boeing, this is good news. Remember, they just got the airworthiness certification for the first one that was parked, has been built out in uh, the Seattle area. So now they can start to begin deliveries. It's not going to happen immediately in terms of a ton of them being delivered, but they'll slowly ramp up production. So this is certainly good news for Boeing. And for American, you're going to see more of this, Melissa, more of these confident flights leading up to December 29th. The rest of them that are scheduled this month, they're with American employees. But, you know, they're with plenty of press. And eventually they're hoping that people will be like, Okay, so the max is flying and that it fades from the memory. That's the hope for American right now. I mean, certainly good for Boeing, who can get the planes off their balance sheet at this point, Phil. I mean, sitting in the desert does them no good. In terms of feathering in those flights, is it because there needs to be a total retraining of all the pilots for these planes? And so they wouldn't even be able to just start flying them. I talked with one pilot today who said, look, I'm scheduled to go in, I think, December 12th. I mean, that's that's what it is right now. You have got to get these pilots in for their certification so that they're up to speed. And I think the pilot training, it depends on... Uh, exactly how they handle it. I think it's going to take something like six hours, seven hours. It might even be less than that, mm. Melissa. So, it's, you know, it takes a little bit of time. You just can't have them, the thousands of pilots go into the system all at one time. And that's the way they're going to be working on this. Plus, they've got to update all of these planes. I mean, they are working their way through it right now. Yep. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau you in Chicago. Tim, I would think it's good for Boeing. It's good for go- it's good for Boeing, and and certainly let's let's see what United and Southwest, who are the more important customers here, frankly, you know, to to getting some of those mothballed planes uh, pulled out of the desert, and and but the expectation on this is look, this is great news. This is a, a, a storyline that uh, I'm glad to hear has is, is gotten better for the company. It's obviously been a tragic tale for uh, a couple of years now, and and the the real issue for Boeing though is not really about the max. It's really about the down 40% uh, on, on passenger volume that, that airplanes have had. Look, I, I flew yesterday. Uh, I flew on Delta. It was a great experience. The, air, the airports were, were uh, I, I thought, you know, well choreographed and, and clean. Uh, I think demand, I think there's more confidence coming back. Obviously, people need to be very, very safe and careful in how they travel. But I, I think the passenger demand side of this is, is, is what this trade is about at this point. Uh, Boeing is going to be back to cash flow positive by the end of 2021. It's not a balance sheet issue. It's a demand issue. And I think that's why the stock continues to inch higher as demand inches higher. You agree with that, Guy? 
To, yeah, makes. I mean, this is this is the thesis that Tim outlined in his power pitch a while back when the stock was, I think, in the mid 180s. You know, here we are at 220, and you know, we thought maybe we'd get back to the levels we saw on June 5th, which, if memory serves, Boeing topped out around 230. So that's right in the crosshairs. In terms of the airlines, you know, Delta's been a name I know that we've been sort of steadfast on, and here we are at 41 dollars. If you're playing the home game, this is actually a pretty logical level to take some money off the table. It's a 50% retracement of the February high and that May 15th low. Remember, the airlines bottomed out in May, not March. So 41 and a half, 42 makes sense to be taking money off the table in Delta, in my opinion. All right. Coming up, what Joe Rogan has to do with the surge in one stock today and why options traders are betting shares will experience even more upside ahead. But first, we've got another fast pitch on deck. Is this tech titan gearing up for some magical returns? We'll bring you the name and the pitch when Fast Money returns. We have a developing story out of Washington, D.C., the House passing legislation threatening a trading ban on shares of Chinese companies uh, if they do not allow U.S. regulators to survey their audits. The president, as we are learning now, is expected to sign this bill, which has bipartisan support. Um, Tim, the companies would have three years to comply with this new rule. What is different, though, is that if they do get delisted, they are completely delisted. They are yanked off exchanges. They don't trade OTC. They just they're gone, um, which makes it more difficult for investors. But is this is this an overhang? Will this be an overhang? I think I, I think it's important. I think it's important legislation. I think it's good news for investors. And, and uh, it's, you know, get uh, get real time for a lot of the the Chinese uh, mega caps. So I, I think it, it, it can be a headwind. Having said all that, um, I do think that the companies that are the top market cap uh, in, in China, in, in at least in the tech space, are names that, for the most part, can meet this demand. There are a handful uh, of, of some of the, uh, you know, $50 billion up companies that, that are running into it. The biggest issue to me is really what China is doing to these companies. But uh, yes, I'm concerned. Uh, I also think this is very good news for investors. Dan, what's your take on this? I agree 100%. I mean, it's a long time coming here, and especially when you think about the market caps of some of these companies over here and some of the funds that they're held in, I think this is to protect the U.S. investor, nothing more. Obviously, um, you know, it's a little saber rattling here, but to Tim's point, it seems like the Chinese are pretty focused on these companies from a regulatory standpoint, too. So to have that sort of uh, formalized in a manner to protect our investors, that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. Yeah, let's uh, bring in Barbara Ann Bernard of Wincrest Capital. She's the CEO there. Um, we booked her to do a fast pitch on Alibaba, but we're just going to go straight into, into Alibaba because we have this news now, Barbara Ann, and I'm wondering if that changes your view at all of this stock. No, I'm all for protecting the investor. Alibaba is audited by the Hong Kong division of PwC, so we don't personally worry about it in this, in this instance. What do you like about Alibaba right now, especially in, you know, in light of, of the Ant IPO being delayed maybe indefinitely for a year, year plus? Uh, that seems to be a big cloud. Absolutely. It's also an, a buying opportunity. Alibaba is a phenomenal business to begin with. So you always want a great business and then you want it at a reasonable price. Growth at a discount is the best form of value. So I like Alibaba for a few reasons. To me, it defines the next era of e-commerce. Basically, U.S. tech is still siloed, whereas you look at an Alibaba and it's a combination of 
Amazon and eBay, right? It's a combination of PayPal, Google, um, AWS. So phenomenal business model. Um, I think the anti-IPO news was overdone, uh, and I can go into that. Um, and I also think it, Alibaba is currently cheap because there is um, news that there'll be um, monopolistic practice um, regulation that historically in China has been a buying opportunity. And we've done it in education. We've seen it in Tencent last year. I'm happy to go into that. The third reason is we had a vaccine news last month, and that has caused a rotation out of tech and into value. And I think that is more of a trade than a trend. COVID has accelerated digitization and Alibaba encompasses so many of these businesses that it really is a once in a generation digitization tailwind. And so while the market is busy debating who's gonna win, whether the car or the horse, I feel really good that Alibaba is not a one trick pony. Barbara Ann, it's Karen, thanks for coming on. I agree with every single word you said. All that together then, what do you think it's worth? So we value Alibaba on a sum of the parts basis. So I have a $325 valuation for the core business and $25 for the net cash on its balance sheet. So that gives you a $350 price target, which is 30% upside from here. So I don't really care about the Alibaba anti-PO because you're getting it for free at this point. So, you know, and you're looking at a company that has extraordinary quality of assets and its revenue is growing 30% next year, its earnings are growing 20% and you're paying 26 times for it. All right. Barbara Ann, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for, for coming on to Fast. We hope we'll see you soon. Barbara Ann um, Bernard of Wincrest Capital, she's the CEO there. Uh, Tim Seymour, I think it's interesting some of the parts valuation, not even assigning a value to Ant at this point, because there's so many questions, yeah. I mean, especially yeah. when it comes to capital requirements for that part of the business. Yeah, that was a great pitch for, for not a power pitch uh, by Barbara <laughs> Ann, also a great song, of course, by the Beach Boys. Um, and and I, I think, you know, looking at some of the parts is often how people look at Alibaba. I, I do think that you can start to layer in also just more of a discount rate if you're doing more of a DCF or an earnings-based valuation. And I, and I think you're, you might even get a lot more upside. Um, but, but as she talked about, the, the, the growth at, 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 you know, of 30 times on the top line and, and possibly, you know, I think you're even higher than that, frankly, um, for 26 times, 28 times. I have it a little bit higher. But I, I think this is one of the great long-term holdings investors should have in their portfolio. I, I, think this is, I think this is the next trillion-dollar company. I think what China's doing right now, there's a reason for it, and there's a reason why it's so, it's so vocal and played out publicly, and, and I get it. But um, that's an opportunity for investors here. So as we had mentioned, this would have been a fast-pitch guy. And at this time of the game, we would mm -hmm. normally be voting. So if this were still a fast-pitch, mm -hmm. how would you cast your vote? I have my uh, smart board out. Can you read that, please, Melissa Lee, for me? I fought for my meals, possible. and I don't know what that means, but I'm sure you'll enlighten I, us. No, of course you don't. Baba. <laughs> O'Reilly. Oh, Not it. called. Yeah. So that was, that was a vote Teenage for. Wasteland. Okay. I'll tell you what. We have the best. We have the best crack staff in Englewood Cliffs. I'm just telling you that Ken's right now. Because the fact that they were staff. able to pull that song. Yeah. Genius. Go back to July when that stock made an all-time high of 260 Alibaba and then sort of sold off 
We are now at 260. The 320 level is where we were on Halloween. So you'd just be recapturing that level. I think it makes a lot of sense. So if this were to be a power pitch, I would have held up that board and said, I'm with Barbara Ann. Ba, 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 Barbara Ann. <laughs> Coming up, Uber <laughs> and Lyft shares accelerating. Is there more fuel left in this rally? We will debate if you should hop into those trades next. In our logistics business, we are squarely in the middle of this massive e-commerce boom. We have the largest outsourced e-com fulfillment platform in all of Europe. We're very big in omni-channel. We're huge in reverse logistics, and we have a big presence in cold chain. So all the hottest parts of supply chain powered by this e-com boom, we're right in the middle of that. That was the CEO of XPO Logistics just moments ago. Speaking with Jim Cramer, shares are higher in the after-hour session of the company announced the spin-off of its contracts logistics business to a separate public company. You can watch the full interview with Jim at the top of the hour only on Mad Money. Coming up, shares of Spotify rocking out today. What is behind this massive move higher? We'll break it down next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Spotify topping the tape to the tune of a brand new all-time high. The audio streaming service saying the Joe Rogan Experience is a platform's top podcast, while Bad Bunny beat out Drake to be Spotify's most streamed musical artist, which I know is a disappointment to Guy, who's a huge Drake fan. Um, but Dan, what, what do you make of this big giant move higher? It's pretty shocking. I think it's primarily technical when you think about those prior highs near 300. You got through there, broke out. But for any investors or any Spotify users who are concerned about the content of the Joe Rogan experience, I think the company is pretty comfortable with the acquisition as they gain $6 billion in market cap or so today on the news that it's going exclusive finally to them. So to me, um, you know, it's kind of a win-win all around. Guy, I know you have a Spotify list that you... uh curate, if I could use that word, because I I do. I really use it loosely yes. because it's just a giant list of songs that you like. I'm over 700 songs right now, number one. That's number two, I would, uh, it's not useless. I'm more par- partial to the Jimi Hendrix experience as opposed to the Joe Rogan experience, and I do like Drake. I loved his coffee cakes, yodels, and ring dings. That was really <laughs> peak Drake, in my opinion, and I wish he would come back with it. <laughs> Such dad humor. Um, we spotted some big things in the options market today on Spotify also. So let's get to Mike Co with the action. Mike. Spotify, we saw considerably above average volume, 10 times the average daily volume, in fact, and calls considerably outpaced puts. For most of the day, the most active options were the January 350 calls. Those were trading for just over $12, and buyers of those calls are obviously making the bet that Spotify could consider the run higher. Through that 350 strike, by at least the $12 that they paid, that would translate to a move of at least 15% to the upside over the course of the next six weeks. But I would also point out, with the stock up as much as it has been, and also that sort of technical move that Dan was just talking about, that it is likely, in my view, that some of this call buying might actually be stock replacement. People who have benefited from the big rally now deciding to take their positions in the form of calls rather than stock. Isn't, Karen, how podcasts have become the new thing to be in? I mean, we got the Wall Street Journal news that Amazon was looking at Wondery, which is, of course, a producer of podcasts. 
I, I just I can't believe where this thing is trading. I mean, they've announced obviously some great deals, Michelle Obama and Rogan. I think feel like it's up again on the same news. I feel dumb because I love the product, uh, but just couldn't get behind the stock. Where do they do the direct listing? One twenty-five, maybe. Wow. I don't remember, couple. I guess that would make it a couple hundred points ago. Yep. Um, totally thank you, Mike Coe, for the uh, action. For more options action, full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And speaking of Spotify, we'll hear from the company's chief content officer, among other big power players of tomorrow's CNBC Evolve live stream. Register to, register to join us at cnbcevents.com slash Evolve live stream. Up next, final trades. You're looking live at Rockefeller Plaza, New York City. We are just a few hours away from this year's tree lighting. No spectators this time around due to the pandemic, but you can catch the tree lighting live on NBC tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Let's get some final trades that will light up your portfolio. Go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Well, oil's been lighting it up. Brent's up uh, 35% since November 1. Best of breed oil services is Lumberger. Again, believe it or not, there's free cash flow there. Uh, a name I'm long and stay long. Karen's got a special guest. <laughs> I do. I wasn't a dog person till this guy. We like Alibaba. I agree with everything Baba Ann said. I bought it higher than here, and I like it here as well. <laughs> Go Jesse. That's the dog. <laughs> Sam. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Salesforce was down 8% today on that buy of Slack. I like the buy. Some investors don't like the price, but the stock is now down 24% from its all-time highs. It's filled in that August earnings gap here. I like it starting to average in between now and about 200 bucks. You know, Guy, Jesse has been sitting on the floor behind Karen chewing on a piglet for the entire hour, and we did not hear a peep or a bark, I should say, well behaved the whole time. I mean, it's the difference between... Uh, I mean, that's the difference between Finnerman and me, amongst the many. Uh, Brenda Lee, nobody else. Tenant healthcare, hospitals go higher. All right, we'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.